You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today's episode takes us back to our discussions of science and research in waterfowl conservation and ecology. And this episode is going to be of great interest to waterfowl hunters and waterfowl fanatics in the Central and Mississippi flyways. We're going to be talking about the preliminary results of a recently completed telemetry study of postbreeding mallards in North and South Dakota. Mallards are obviously one of the most highly sought after species of waterfowl among hunters this time of year. And the fact that we're going to have some data that talks about or helps us understand what these birds are doing during the time of year when it's of great interest to uh, to hunters is going to make this an especially uh, interesting episode. Uh, to help us with this discussion, the person that has actually been conducting this research is going to be our guest today, and that is Cindy Anker, a master's student at South Dakota State University. Cindy, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. This is going to be a very popular episode. I can guarantee you that people love to hear about mallards. They love even more to hear about mallard migration, mallard movements, especially when it can be informed by things such as telemetry. And that's exactly what we have here with your study. Uh, Before we get into that, uh, we always start off by allowing our guests to tell our listeners a bit about themselves and your case, your personal background, and how how you wound up at South Dakota State. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, so I grew up on a a farm in central Pennsylvania, and I think I was about six years old when I watched a biologist banding ducks on a local television program. And I think that's about when I started telling people that I wanted to band ducks when I grew up. Um, So obviously now I have a much better understanding of of what that means and why we do it. But I kind of wanted to be a waterfowl biologist before I even knew what a waterfowl biologist was. Um, So when the time came, I attended uh, California University of Pennsylvania for my undergraduate degree in wildlife biology. And then I spent about five years working with waterfowl in various capacities for Ducks Unlimited um, on graduate students' research projects and with state and federal wildlife agencies. Um, And that really gave me the experience that I needed to get where I am now um, as a master's student at South Dakota State University working on this pretty awesome mallard telemetry study. You said from an early age, you knew that you wanted to ban ducks when you grew up. Do you have any stories of of what of when you were asked as a young kid in, in a class somewhere to say, to describe what you wanted to do, who you wanted to be when you grow up? And you said, I want to be a wildlife biologist. Do you have any of those cool stories? You know, I don't have any specific stories um, because it was pretty much any time anybody asked me. And it was, it was definitely one of those things where... Uh, most people, when you tell them that, kind of look at you like you're crazy. They don't really understand what it is either. Um, but we did have a local conservation officer that was friends of the family. And 
uh, he was he was really good to me, um, sort of introducing me to the world of wildlife and, you know, gave me a little junior conservation officer badge when he found out what I wanted to do. Um, so so it was but it was pretty it was pretty um, common throughout my childhood. I even had a, a bird book that kind of fell open to the waterfowl pages when I was 10. So <laughs> it's it's always been there. Yeah, well, good. I appreciate you sharing those details of kind of how you became, um, how you became inspired, how you became fascinated with with waterfowl, with birds. We've had a few episodes prior to this, um, the women in waterfowl episodes, where we spoke with some of our our female colleagues, and they described some of their experiences growing up, and invariably in those experiences in their childhood, in their time growing up, there was someone that inspired them, that enabled their pursuit, their fascination with waterfowl and migratory birds and, and enabled their pursuit of it as a professional career. And it sounds like you had some people in your life that served the same role. So uh, so thanks to those people uh, for allowing you and enabling you to get to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My whole family was was pretty into the outdoors and my dad hunted a lot and I started waterfowl hunting with him very early. So um, I definitely had the exposure he really encouraged that passion. I would say largely thanks to him. Very good. That, and that's going to be a, that's a common theme with, with many folks. And I kind of fall into that same category. Uh, Cindy, I wanted to transition here to talk about something else that is relevant to this particular discussion and who you are uh, here with respect to uh, Ducks Unlimited support of your research. You are another one of our recipients, another one of our Ducks Unlimited fellowship recipients. And I think this is the second year where you have been the recipient of a fellowship in support of your research. You specifically have been the recipient of the Waterfowl Research Foundation Fellowship which is it's relatively new and it's uh, it's it specifically states that it's an investment in our young waterfowl professionals and we have three primary objectives behind this fellowship uh, one of which is to develop critical scientific information uh, to f- help contribute to the furthering of our conservation of waterfowl and wetland resources contributing to the training of our future professionals and then honoring the critical role that waterfowlers have played in supporting waterfowl and wetland conservation throughout North America. And specific to this last component, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, Cindy, but I believe this is the one of the fe- one of the fellowships that requires the recipient to possess a hunting license. Does that sound right? That's correct. I had to send them proof that I that I had hunting licenses to be eligible for it. It's a testament to the I guess the insight of the people that set up this fellowship, recognizing the important role that that hunters have played there. There are roles and there are that that people from all across society play. But we tell the story often about how waterfowl hunters and hunters in general have been at the forefront of some of our conservation efforts since the turn of the century, turn of the, uh, I guess, turn of the 19th century. So that's uh, wanted to make sure we pointed that out. What has your experience been with regard to this fellowship? Uh, is it have you found that you were able to um, learn a bit more about some of the some of the funding support or some of the some of the people that support research such as yours? My project is pretty well funded and we have a lot of collaborators that I'm sure I'll get the chance to acknowledge. But like you said, among them is Ducks Unlimited through this um, Waterfowl Fellowship. Uh, and I'm grateful, of course, for the financial support. It has helped cover some field season costs and 
um, some travel for me to share preliminary results at, at meetings and conferences, um, but also to further my professional development at um, events such as the Central Flyway Waterfowl Wing Bee. Um, but also it really means a lot that DU recognizes the importance of this project and is willing to um, provide this support to graduate students such as myself that, that are trying to kind of enhance our understanding of waterfowl management, especially in critical habitat like the Prairie Pothole region. Congratulations to you on being a recipient of this award and for carrying out this this important research. And so w- with that, Cindy, let's transition a bit to talk about the, the research it's, itself. I'm generally familiar with it. You and I met, I believe, earlier this year at a Central Flyway Technical Committee meeting. It feels like that was about five years ago, but it was actually only about eight months ago. <laughs> um, so I, I am generally familiar with what you did. But for our listeners, set this up and explain the explain what your project was about. Explain what the why it's important and kind of how you went about it. Sure. So um, for my master's thesis specifically, uh, I am most interested in um, young of the year or what we call hatch year mallards during the post-fledging period. So that's um, time in late summer and autumn between when young mallards are just learning to fly and when they make their first um, migration south. So we know that they have a lot of unique things going on during this period. They're learning to fly and navigate, figuring out how to avoid and escape predators. And it's also when they encounter their um, waterfowl hunters for the first time. It's the the first waterfowl season that they get to experience. Um, So it's it's a pretty vulnerable period of their lives. Um, and in fact, band recovery data shows that hatchier mallards make up about a quarter of the of the ducks, just all species of ducks that are shot in North and South Dakota. Um, but talking specifically about mallards, um, hatchier birds make up a little over 60% of the harvest. So they're potentially a pretty important part of waterfowl management and habitat conservation in the prairie pothole region. Yet we know um, very little about their specific needs. It's it's not a time period in the mallard annual cycle that has been um, really studied heavily at all in the past. So um, kind of along with that, it seems like certain areas of the Dakotas that typically support a large number of breeding mallards in early summer are potentially seeing regional decreases in the number of mallards um, in late summer and autumn. So my primary project objectives are to figure out kind of where and how far these young mallards are moving, why they're moving, and what habitats they need before they migrate. Cindy, that's a good point about uh, about this study of yours targeting a time of the year where we haven't done a great deal of study of waterfowl ecology. Most of us are, are very familiar with the abundant research has been conducted on waterfowl during the breeding season and during the, the fall and, and winter period. And of course, the the literature tells us rather confidently that it, it really is that breeding season and so it's breeding activities that drive population growth of, of waterfowl. And then of course the autumn and winter period is of great importance to us because that's really when we are interacting with these birds as, as waterfowl hunters and when our habitat conservation efforts become so critical in terms of ensuring they have the resources during that time of the year. But if there's one other thing that we've all been taught as students of waterfowl ecology 
it's that we have to understand and plan for and conserve habitats that meet the needs of these birds throughout the annual cycle. And as you pointed out, there's a lot of things that happen during that that post-fledging period, right after those birds um, attain flight and are able to kind of um, venture out on their own. So it has to be pretty interesting from a student standpoint to be investigating this these this time period, these behaviors about which we have previously not done a great deal of study. Did you find that particularly attractive as a research topic? I would say yes and no. I was I was definitely ready to get into grad school. Um, and this project was very interesting to me. I don't know if that component specifically was what drew me into it. But now that I'm here, it is really fascinating. It's awesome to um, to be exploring this this period of time that we really don't know a lot about. Um, honestly, before I started this project, I I don't know if I realized that there was a period in the Mallard annual cycle that we didn't already kind of know what was going on. So um, it has been it has been really fascinating and really fun to to watch these birds move and to see them migrate, uh, not quite in real time, and to interact with the waterfowl hunters that have had opportunities to harvest them. So it's been it's been really cool. I introduced at the beginning that your study made use of some uh, some telemetry technology and not just any telemetry uh, technology, but with, with each passing year, our ability to incorporate. Uh, more sophistication in our tracking devices uh, just just increases, sometimes exponentially, it seems like. And so you are actually using, uh, tr- if I understand, remember correctly, using transmitters that uh, that communicate with with uh, cellular networks and yet is, a- is able to attain like GPS quality locations. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about the t- telemetry that you're actually using. That is correct. Uh, I could talk for 20 minutes about the functionality of these transmitters. They're, uh, they're awesome. They've worked very well for us. So we had um, two veterinarians on the project, Dr. Scott Ford and Charlie Bonson, who surgically implanted um, these transmitters into the abdominal cavities of 137 wild-caught um, hatchier mallards. So the way these transmitters work is they connect to satellites to collect very high quality GPS locations. Um, like our, our location accuracy is estimated at less than five meters. Um, and then they use um, 3G cellular network to transmit the data to us. It actually comes to a website. Um, so I just log into the website and download the data. It's it's that easy. Once my transmitters are implanted and the birds are released, um, they're pretty much online and collecting and sending data. There are a number of telemetry studies underway across North America right now that are making use of this these new technologies, GPS quality data, uh, GPS quality location data, and then it's communicated back to the researcher through the cellular networks. But yours are a bit different from a lot of the others that are out there. There are two basic styles, you might say, in terms of attachment. One is an external attachment and the other is an, is an internal, uh, an implant, as yours is. What's the, what's the advantage of the implant versus the, uh, the external? I mean, I, I know there's different camps here, but just talk about that from the perspective of your study. There are definitely considerations like what you're, what's 
uh, your study question, how long do you need these units to last um, as far as battery life? And also what species are you working with? Um, because different species of waterfowl handle different transmitter types differently. Um, I think for us, um, we didn't need transmitters that necessarily lasted over multiple years. So we didn't need a backpack unit that might be solar powered. We were just hoping to rely on the battery that we started with to get us through the primary period that we were interested in. I'm glad you went there. I think that's one of the biggest differences. Uh, the key differences between whether you're going to choose a, a backpack versus an implant is like, obviously if you have an implant transmitter, you can't have a solar power source, right? Um, whereas if you wanted a solar power source, you wanted it to last for multiple years, potentially as long as the birds survive, then you have to go with that backpack um, package because that's the only way you can get that solar, um, that solar power source, right? Right. Yeah. We just felt that for us, the internal unit was the better option. Cindy, I've been part of some of those conversations and debates about weighing the trade-offs of one transmitter style versus the other, the implants versus the backpacks. Uh, the implants, obviously, uh, you've kind of introduced here, they they come with, or have alluded to, they come with some added complexity in terms of um, the the procedure that you have to use in order to to equip the birds with this transmitter it's implanted physically implanted in the in the abdominal cavity of the bird and i'm going to guess this one has an external antenna so you have the main the circuitry and the battery internal and then it has an an antenna that actually protrudes out of the the back of this bird is that uh, is that the style that you're using yes that's correct um and and as i said we had two veterinarians that um, perform those procedures. We actually put mallards under um, under anesthesia and give them analgesics, and it, they go through an actual surgery. It takes about forty five minutes to implant each mallard, um, and the surgeries are, they're they're pretty slick. They go really well, and recovery is surprisingly short. Um, but there's definitely some added cost and and complexity to deployment of the transmitters if you go with the internal implants. Let me ask you a question related to this. Uh, you mentioned the uh, th that in your case, these being implants, there's not a solar power source. What's the What was the expected lifespan of these transmitters? And this is obviously going to relate to the study objectives. This kind of illustrates how a researcher has to think about the technique that they are going to use to study a bird uh, because they have to make sure that it's, it's able to deliver the data needed to address their specific study objectives. So with respect to your study objectives, let's talk about the expected lifespan of your transmitters. We are using extremely new units and we didn't know what to expect in terms of battery life. Even the manufacturers weren't exactly sure what to expect in terms of battery life. But um, our primary period of interest was was the pre-migratory period, that post-fledging period. And so our plan was to deploy transmitters and birds in maybe late July and August. Um, kind of as early as possible because we wanted to try to ensure that we were getting uh, locally reared young mallards. Um, and we felt confident that these transmitters could at least get us through migration or get us to migration. And then any data we collected beyond that, uh, we, 
would be bonus data and we would just answer the questions that we could. So these transmitters actually ended up um, performing maybe a little bit better than we expected. Um, but there's still a lot of variation in how long the batteries last because actually connecting to the 3G cellular network and transmitting the data is a pretty energetically expensive process. And so if, if they connect and get really good signal and can get the data downloaded really quickly, it doesn't drain nearly as much battery as if it connects and sits there searching for service for 90 seconds and isn't able to transmit the data. So it depends a lot actually on where the birds were sitting. Did you have any of the units that lasted until the following spring, such that you could see the birds as they were migrating back north and were prospecting for breeding sites? Uh, quite a few, actually. We had some that lasted, um, especially in the second year of the study. We had some that we deployed in July of 2019 that um, we were still collecting data in October of 2020. So some of them have had really long lifespans. Um, we didn't get a lot of breeding information and a lot of spring information. We did get to see some spring migrations, um, but we generally didn't have, we're not going to have enough birds that lasted into the spring to make any real inferences. Okay. So your primary focus was on that post-breeding, post-fledging period, and then but you also had quite a few of them, the batteries last long enough to to develop a pretty good database on on fall migration movements, right? Yeah, that's correct. Cindy, one question that I had for you specific to your methods uh, was whether you, like the birds that you marked, were these, did you mark these birds, capture and mark these birds before they were able to fly or was it a mix? Some were able to fly and some were not. It was a mix. I, I think we started with the goal of trying to mark all locally reared um, flightless um, hatchier mallards, but we ended up having to mark some that were that were flighted. Uh, we we used rocket nets in South Dakota, and those caught mostly fledged birds already. We we had intended to to mark all locally reared birds, but the complexity of the field season and trying to spread the sample across a pretty large geographic area and mark birds in a pretty short amount of time um, sort of precluded us from being able to actually mark all flightless birds. We, we ended up marking a pretty even split of locally reared um, flightless mallards and also flighted hatchier mallards. One of the complexities there that may not be immediately obvious, but I, that I would imagine that you ran into is that with flightless birds, you and you're trying to implant these transmitters, you you have to the birds have to be a certain minimum size before you can safely perform the surgery, implant the transmitter. You obviously can't do it on a two-week-old duckling. And so there's a narrower window of time within which you could actually catch the, the birds that were large and that were still flightless, but large enough to, uh, to take the transmitter, right? Yeah, we released a lot of mallards that didn't make the minimum size threshold. And we, our goal was to always mark them um kind of bigger is better um because you didn't want to you didn't want to put a 32 gram transmitter in a 600 gram mallard it it looked pretty tight in that abdominal cavity and so we 
we definitely had a very narrow window where we could actually catch the birds and, and implant them. It was a very narrow age class that we were targeting. Now, in terms of uh, some of these have been recovered by hunters, right? And it, are there other, each of these birds would have received a standard aluminum leg band, but was there also another leg band that you attached that maybe had some contact information? Could, they wouldn't have been able to see the transmitter externally. They would have been able to see the antenna. Uh, but I know in some cases, I don't know if this was a, this happened to you at all, but some of those antennas on, can actually fall out. At least that's happened to us on some past studies with which I've been associated. So in that case, they wouldn't have even had the external transmitter to kind of notify them or alert them that, hey, this bird is different. So were there, were, were these birds, I guess you might say double banded also? Um, they were. So they had this, the standard aluminum um, leg band, and then they had a, a second leg band that uh, had a message that said transmitter in bird please contact and then it gave a phone number either for north dakota game and fish or south dakota game fish and parks um and it's probably a good thing we had those on there we didn't have any um antenna fall off that i know of but i have had several hunters report that the uh, mallards had actually preened them under the feathers so you couldn't see the antenna because it was laid laid under the feathers yeah uh, that those birds uh, tend to fiddle around with that antenna. I've seen it. I studied studied uh, male mallards, radio marked male mallards in the prairies, and we had little external antennas, external transmitters, and my study also required like visual observations of those birds, and so I could see them occasionally preening that antenna. Um, so they don't like it. They don't like it. So you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Surprisingly, right? <laughs> Cindy, let's talk. Let's uh, move now to actually talk about some of your preliminary results. I'm not going to get into all the details. I, I don't want to ask you to um, to share results that that may not be quote you know final yet. So we just have some highlights here that I wanted to ask you about. Um, so, and we can just talk generally uh, about these things. What did you see? You know, we, we talked, one of your primary objectives was to understand the movements of these birds during this, um, during this post-fledging period. Generally speaking, what did you see? What were some of the key takeaways there? Um, yeah, so we collected over 56,000 pre-migration locations. And so we have a lot of data. And I think one of the most interesting things that I took away from, from all of that is um, these birds are extremely mobile. And even these young mallards are making some really long distance movements before migration. So we're talking just pre-migration relocations. Um, on average, the longest distances Distances moved by individuals during the pre-migration period was around 80 miles, but we had one mallard move uh, 350 miles northwest. Uh, it, he was marked in southeastern North Dakota and um, in early October moved up to um, Estevan, Canada. That's a that's a great uh, little data point to illustrate something that we're all 
always careful. We, we try to always be careful about stating with regard to what kind of inference can be drawn from band recoveries. Like these birds, where these birds are banded, unless the bird that you're banding is flightless, um, you can't necessarily assume that the place where you're banding it is where it was where it was hatched and originated. Certainly, if it's an adult bird, you can't. But even if it's a young bird, like if you're out there banding, you can tell if it's a if it's a hatchier bird. But if that hatchier bird is flighted, you can't necessarily assume that it it was hatched from in the immediate vicinity of where you are banding it, right? Your, your study kind of speaks to that where you had this bird, hatch your bird that moved 300 miles Northwest and was potentially uh, hypothetically available for banding at that, at that other location. Was that, uh, are your data informing some of those kind of discussions as well? Um, they are. We haven't gotten um, far into any of those questions yet. But part of this project is definitely going to be pulling comparable preseason banding data. Um, we actually did mark these birds from a lot of even the same exact banding locations that um, other local and hatchier birds were marked in the same years. So we're ho hoping to be able to make some pretty interesting inferences about um, maybe some gaps um, or changes that need to be made in preseason banding strategies, um, but also maybe use some of that preseason banding data as a gauge of whether our birds were were behaving normally um, in terms of looking for transmitter effects and some of those behavioral issues that we were talking about earlier. Between the birds that were marked in North and South Dakota, were there any notable differences in any of these pre-migration movements uh, or was that kind of uh, highly variable? What did you see there? Um, it was pretty highly variable. I didn't, I didn't notice any uh, major differences between North Dakota and South Dakota mallards. Um, generally, Northeastern South Dakota was a really important staging area for birds marked in both states um, and presumably also, you know, mallards that are produced in Canada or Minnesota and other surrounding areas. So um, we didn't see a lot of difference between states, but but it's going to be really interesting to as some of those kind of hotspots, important areas um, emerge. I might have you might have already said this, and, and I just can't remember it. But um, where where were your study sites, uh, generally speaking? At how many different locations across North and South Dakota did you capture and mark these birds? South Dakota, we marked birds from seven different sites, and those were all rocket netting sites that are established by South Dakota South Dakota Game Fish and Parks and have been used for a while. Um, in North Dakota. Our strategy was a little bit different. Um, our capture methods were a little bit different because of the way the preseason banding operations are run. And so in North Dakota, we marked birds from maybe 30 different sites, um, but they were all over all over southeastern North Dakota and northeastern South Dakota. Okay, so this wasn't a situation where you had just one or two locations at which you were marking these birds. These were taken from uh, a large number of, of areas, right? Yeah, yeah. We um, 
we kind of set it up that way. We even tried to avoid marking broodmates as much as possible. Um, we were trying to ensure as much independence as we could and still get our sample marked in a reasonable amount of time. Cindy, that's good. That's probably enough there on the uh, on that aspect of your study. I was looking at your progress report and you have like nine obje- nine objectives. So there's a whole lot to cover. We're not going to get to all of those. And I know you probably don't have all of the analyses completed yet on some of the post-breeding uh, or post-fledging habitat use. I know that's going to be something that, that will eventually come out in your analyses. And we've, we've talked here generally about some of these large movements that these birds can make post-fledging uh, before migration. Uh, so let's move right now into some of those migratory movements. This is a topic that is that is of, of huge interest of what motivates these birds to move. When do they move? How far do they move? All those types of things I know you have you've been looking at or thinking about. So talk in general about your um, the, your analyses, how you've been looking into some of those migration movements. I very briefly looked at some of the um factors that might influence the timing of migration. Um, As I said, for my master's thesis, we're mostly focused on the pre-migration period. So I haven't, I haven't gotten too far into all of the, the other data yet. Um, One thing that's kind of good about my, well, good and bad, I guess, about the data set is, is the amount of data that we have. And we're going to be able to mine this and answer a lot of questions, but not necessarily within my master's project. Um, But we did see that the timing of migration out of North Dakota and South Dakota was very closely related to um, temperature. It seemed like especially minimum temperatures below, um, below freezing I guess we had several pushes of birds out of the out of the states and a lot of those bigger pushes of birds out generally corresponded with some pretty low minimum temperatures. I was you shared your progress report with me before before this discussion and I was looking at a couple of figures in in that report and it shows the frequency of your marked birds moving out of North and South Dakota, initiating their migration as you uh, as you ended up defining it. And uh, it was as we would expect, these birds did not all leave at one time. You have your sample of marked birds and your data show a uh, show a trend where you have some birds that will depart in October and then you have a few that sort of depart occasionally throughout the month of October and then you have some instances where you have a strong front come through strong weather system come through and drops the temperatures low temperatures down below freezing and then you see a, a sort of a pulse of birds exiting the area but um, one of the things but there are other uh, I, I guess time periods, uh, series of days where are where there are notably large numbers of these marked birds exiting the state, and so I remember seeing some of these early results at that at the uh, Central Flyway Technical Committee meeting earlier this year, and I, I seem to recall one aspect of your discussion saying, you know, we didn't see all of these birds leave right after the front came through because basically what's happening is we have these cold fronts coming through, and so you get that strong push of, of air from the north, cold Arctic air, uh, and then it's in place for two to five or longer days. What did you see generally with regard to how long it was 
after passage of that front that these birds really started to leave? Is there did did some of them leave right on the heels of that front, or did they did most of them kind of wait a few days? Uh, what what's going on there? As you can understand it from your study, I mean that's pr- that's pretty specific, um, and I don't know if we have the weather or location data to say specifically whether they went out on the you know leading edge of the front but i would say generally within 24 hours of of the cold front you'd get kind of a major pulse of birds uh and some just some just hung around and and didn't leave with that particular front and so that's kind of another interesting thing that we're never going to be able to explain but what makes one bird leave on a particular front and another bird wait for I don't like 10 inches of snow before it it leaves the state. So there's a there's a lot of really interesting stuff that we're that we're seeing in the data that it's going to be really hard to explain unfortunately. And these were all first year birds that were marked. You didn't have any adult birds marked, right? That's correct. We have some um, some of these hatchier birds that are sticking around weeks after the first shot of really cold air comes through and exactly as you're talking about there is it because they're they're more fit. They've they had uh, they were able to fatten up earlier. Uh, they were able to uh, become sort of more tolerant of those those cold weather patterns, or is it just the opposite? Were those the birds? Were the birds that were kind of hanging out there at, even after that first cold front come through? Were they the ones that were struggling to attain some sort of migratory condition? Um, I don't know that we'll have that. Had, we won't have that data, will we? Uh, you know, that's actually really interesting. Um, I don't know for sure if we're going to be able to to answer that question, but when we marked birds, we know we know what age class they were, we know how much they weighed, and we know the date of marking. And so we may be able to um, you know, back calculate if you will kind of how that how old that bird was, and that could end up being a really important part of that. Um, cuz we had some that we marked in July as as fledged hatchier mallards and some that we marked the end of August as um, you know, an age class 2C duckling that had another week or two before it was going to even be able to fly quite a bit smaller in body size too. So, you know, condition of that duck at time of migration is likely dependent on how early of a hatch it was. Will you be able to look into any of those relationships through as part of your thesis or is that going to be beyond the scope of what you're able to do? I actually think that that's something we're pretty interested in, in looking into, uh, maybe including age and some uh, or or body mass or some of those components as as covariates and models. Um, but we have I still have a lot of work to do on that um, to kind of figure out exactly how those will be incorporated. You have a really neat data set, a really rich data set, especially when you think about your ability now nowadays to combine this telemetry data, this high-resolution telemetry, high-resolution both in space and time, I should say, uh, telemetry data, along with some um, fairly high-resolution landscape scale land cover data. And I know that's part of what you're you're also interested in. So there's, <laughs> I remember asking you earlier this year if you're going to be looking into this question or that question and you're like, well, uh, 
that the list of questions that people want us to look into, it, it grows every day. And so we have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, so, but that's the, it's a cool thing about having a data set and having a study such as yours. So uh, in that vein, I want to move on now to one of the other very interesting aspects of it is some of the kind of migration distances. We've talked briefly about when these birds left and weather being a, a key factor in motivating that. But let's talk about uh, some of the the distances, the the steps, these migration steps, as as they're called, how far did they go uh, on some of these? What was the average length of their migratory step, you might say? Uh, how far south did some of these birds go? What did you see in terms of their actual migration events? The migration aspects of this project are, are pretty cool. And I, I think the first bird that migrated the first year of the study, I texted every one of my committee members as soon as I noticed it left, like with three exclamation points that one of our birds had had left the state. Um, and so in a single migratory jump, um, I think birds were averaging about 380 miles, um, which is pretty incredible. They, I, I think it, it seemed to happen a lot faster than I expected. Um, our farthest distance without detecting our resting location was 950 miles. Uh, but at that point, we were only collecting one location every seven hours. Um, so we, we likely missed a stopover. And I guess that's kind of an important thing to bring up with, with these data. Um, even when we're collecting locations as frequently as every five hours, we're still only really seeing snapshots of what's happening. Um, and so we're not going to be able to say definitively that birds were traveling this distance between stopovers um, or or traveled, you know, this exact distance along a migration route because they also likely aren't flying in straight lines, um, which is what we're seeing on maps. So so there's a lot there that that is still kind of unknown to us, but we were seeing migrations happening pretty quickly by a lot of the birds. Um, there was also some individual variation though. Some birds were a little bit slower to leave, um, spent longer periods um, at stopover locations. So, so kind of a lot of variation there. And Cindy, related to that, to the programming of that transmitter where you were collecting these locations, the location data, I think you said only every once every seven hours, was it? Yeah. So during the pre-migration period, we were once every five hours. And then once we got them kind of through our primary study period, we decreased that to seven hours um, in, in an effort to save battery. Yeah, and that's what I was. That's where I was going to go. Is that it relates to the study objectives, limitations of the uh, of our of the technology that we're using. These implant and transmitters, we again don't have the aren't afforded the luxury of of an external solar power source on these particular transmitters. And these transmitters are also really cool because you can communicate. If I understand, if these are the same as I'm familiar with you can communicate to the transmitter itself. It's like a two-way communication. You can actually, um, in real time, go in and adjust 
the data recording cycle on these transmitters, right? Yeah, that's correct. We have a dashboard on a website that I can just go in and reprogram any of the transmitters anytime I want um, with the caveat that they have to be sitting in an area with good cell service um, because that, that updated setting won't take effect until it makes a strong uh, cellular connection which actually was an issue for us sometimes. And so the other thing that they let us do was use, um, basically set up geographic boundaries where I could actually program three unique um, sets of of duty cycles or settings for these transmitters. And as soon as that bird crossed that boundary, it changed how frequently it was collecting data or how frequently it was transmitting data. And so that became a better way for us to control the units from a distance because in that case, they don't need a strong cellular connection. All they need to do is turn on and connect to GPS and then automatically um, the new the new programming takes effect. It's remarkable. It's simply remarkable what we're able to do with these transmitters nowadays. You think back, uh, back previously, all you could do is just have a uh, have a unit that emits a signal and you had to be within a mile or so of it to detect it. But now we can, not only can we detect these things, uh, well, through the use of satellites uh, and that information can be downloaded to us in near real time, we can actually communicate to the transmitter and change the internal programming on it. Uh, and you can do, as you, as you said, you can program it to that uh, such that that data recording frequency changes based on the low, on where it is geographically. It's simply amazing what we're able to do nowadays, which is what makes this so exciting, the, the type of data and amount of data that we are collecting. Um, let's, let's shift briefly. We've been going for quite some time here, and I want to wrap this up here before I keep you on too long. Uh, let's talk briefly about where some of these birds ended up in winter. What was some of the – where did you find most of these birds um, – uh, establishing their terminal wintering ground. And then, uh, yeah, so let's just start there. I'll, I'll, one question at a time. What was the general terminal wintering area for a lot of these birds? Um, yeah, so that depended a little bit on the individual and also the year. Um, in 2018, um, we had quite a few birds winter in the central flyway, um, particularly Kansas. Um, and some jumped to the, to the, Mississippi Flyway in Missouri and Arkansas. Um, and then 2019, a majority of our birds went to northern Arkansas and they were in that Mississippi alluvial valley, kind of what everybody thinks of as classic mallard, mallard wintering habitat. Our furthest south bird actually went all the way down to coastal Louisiana, spent the winter on the coast. And then we had one that went east to Alabama and and hung out on a reservoir in Alabama for part of the winter with really no other water around there. So um, our farthest north bird actually wintered in South Dakota on some kind of man-made water body that stayed open. Um, and then, of course, we had birds just kind of scattered from Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri on different reservoirs and the Missouri River. So, Cindy, uh, another question about some of these winter movements. I, I know maybe before we really got we started having access to some of these high scale or, or high resolution um, movement data during winter, we we oftentimes thought about about migration movements 
during winter as sort of being unidirectional. Birds depart uh, from the from the breeding grounds and they move south, and then they hit their um, their their terminal wintering ground, and then that's it. Then they'll they'll stay there, and then once they they decide to migrate back north to their breeding ground, they'll turn around. And they'll go they'll go do that. But we've sensed we've since started learning a lot more about what they about their within winter movements. Um, and so I'm kind of curious what you actually saw uh, with respect to this north to south movement to a terminal wintering area, and then then. Did that happen or was there some movement, uh, varying movements throughout that winter period? What did you see, at, you know, I guess, generally speaking about those with those winter movements? I do think people generally think of of migration as being from point A to point B with points A and B being relatively small. Um, but what we, we actually saw is when these birds arrived at, at a kind of a terminal wintering area, they may maybe sat in that spot for two weeks to two months. And then we started seeing very similar movement patterns during the winter that we saw during pre-migration. They were still making some 200 mile movements, sometimes north, um, sometimes south, and, and often even east and west. We had birds jump between the Central and Mississippi Flyway on multiple occasions. Um, so... So it seemed like the actual within winter movements and the overall patterns of movement within the winter were very similar to what we saw during the pre-migration period. Um, and, you know, we're, we would like to be able to to figure out or possibly explain why those movements are happening. But we really don't know if it's in response to um, freezing and thawing or maybe localized precipitation that that makes new foraging resources available or hunting disturbance. My guess is it's going to be a combination of all of those things and probably some others, right? Yeah, exactly. There are so many things that it could be. It makes it really hard for scientists to be able to point to one thing or two things and say, this is why this is happening. Okay, Cindy, one, perhaps one final question before we start to wrap up. How many of your birds were harvested by hunters? Uh, did you get some of those calls, people um, reporting the, the, these harvested birds that had an antenna? And, and what can you tell me about any of those conversations? Yeah, um, in 2018, we had, I think, eight or nine birds harvested. So we we're looking at about 16% harvest rate. And in 2019, we had 22 birds harvested. And so we were looking at about a 28 or 29% harvest rate, um, which was obviously quite a bit higher. Um, all of my interactions with hunters were, were great. Everybody seems really interested in the project and what we have going on. Um, and, and they love getting those maps of where their bird, their bird was and when it migrated. And um, so, so that's been really fun. That's been a really fun component of the project for me. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is we had a bird that we marked in 2019 harvested um, this season already. And we had three birds marked in 2018 that were harvested last season. So in all four of those cases, we know that that those particular mallards survived, um, you know, well beyond one year after marking and uh, kind of kind of gave us a, a known fate on that bird. We know what happened to it, even 
um, even after it stopped transmitting data to us. So, so the harvest, the harvest has actually been a really cool part of the project. You know, I actually can think back to this past uh, hunting season and I remember seeing a, a social media post and, and I think it was actually a bird that was, was in your study. And I, I reached out to, to your advisor, Dr. Josh Stafford, and said, hey, we'll make sure that you're aware of this. And I think y'all had already seen it. You probably already knew about it because um, based on the, um, maybe some of the signals that you were getting from the birds. But anyway, you see a lot of that this time of year. And and I think it's really cool that you, uh, that you're providing this kind of history uh, for the birds that are harvested and reported by the hunters that gives them a more personal connection to these birds and sees the the, the movements that they make and really helps to, uh, I guess, firm up this, the, the, the challenges that, that these birds have to under, the movements that they undertake, the, the landscapes over which they have to, to navigate, the scale at which we have to think about conservation and delivering our, our, our restoration efforts uh, and, and how we study these birds. And so they're, they're truly long distance migrants. No, um, not, not breaking any um, any news there, but the maps that you're able to provide, I'm sure, really drive home the um, just the fascinating nature of what these birds are able to do. Did you have any neat conversations with with them in that regard? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's been really fun. Of course, we appreciate hunters reporting those kinds of things because if they don't report them, we don't we don't necessarily know what happened to those birds. Um, but some of the, some of the really fun conversations I've had with hunters have, have been about specific hunting details. And, and I've, I've gotten some cool stories about, you know, it was their first dog's retreat or their dog's first retrieve. Um, for one young hunter in North Dakota, it was his first duck ever. Um, so, so there have just been some really neat stories, uh, that have come out of this. And actually last year we had a lot of young hunters that, that harvested birds with transmitters in, you know, 10 or 12 years old. So hopefully we've hooked them for life. Yeah, absolutely. That for sure. And if you, if your first bird or one of the first birds that you harvest is one that contains a transmitter, I can't help but imagine that that leaves a pretty strong impression. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. And especially then if you can tie together the story of where that bird came from, where it moved. And, you know, that just, again, opens the eyes to the large, large scales over which these birds have to, have to depend. Um, let's see, Cindy, I, I, I have to wrap up here because I've kept you far longer than I intended to. Uh, I know you are, you don't have any other, any birds remaining out there that are actively transmitting. You conducted your study for two years last year. Um, you know, the summer of 2019 was the last year when you actually marked birds. Um, you don't have any, by chance, any transmitters that are still functioning though. Uh, let me make sure I'm correct in that. Not cur- not currently. Uh, we we were collecting data um, into September and October for three of them, but I haven't received any transmissions yet in November. So I'm guessing that those batteries are dead. Okay. All right. So yeah, you and you are now well on your way to uh, completing your analyses and the the fun stage of writing up your results. Uh, tell us generally what lies ahead for you. What are the uh, remaining key analyses and questions that you've yet to that that are um, that are on your plate? Um. Yeah. So so 
I'm getting to a point now where I've got a lot of small components almost put together that I'm going to be able to to get some really cool habitat selection analyses done. We've been working with this um, dynamic surface water data to try to get an idea of how much water was across the landscape, sort of abundance and distribution of water across the landscape. Um, We've been working on some hunting disturbance estimates. And so we're hoping to be able to put all of that together really soon and, and get some pre-migration habitat selection stuff. So I'm really excited about that. Very good. And good luck with the with those analyses and all the writing. I look forward to the results once they eventually come out. And before we go, I do need to give you an opportunity to acknowledge all of your research partners. And I know there are going to be many of those. So here's your chance to thank them. Yes. So most of the funding from for this project came from the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, which was administered by North Dakota Game and Fish Department and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Um, they were the major, major project partners. Um, I also got a lot of support from my university, South Dakota State University, and the South Dakota Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. Um, and also, I want to acknowledge um, U.S. Geological Survey's Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Research Center in North Dakota. Um, folks from, from the research center helped me quite a bit in getting these birds marked, and they've provided a lot of um, technical and logistic support. So, And of course, the um, Ducks Unlimited for their support and the fellowship that they provided um, that enabled me to, to do this project. So lots of different collaborators, and none of this would be possible without them. Thank you, Cindy. It's been great having you on the podcast. Um, like I said, mallards, uh, movements of mallards, uh, whether it be immediately after the breeding season, during migration, or during winter, is always a very um, interesting topic, one that's going to garner a lot of interest among our listeners. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of the preliminary results with us. Uh, I wish we, we could, we've been doing this for about an hour, and I know we could easily talk for another hour on this, but I'm not going to do that. We'll wait. How about this? We'll wait until you get some of the results published, and then we'll have you on to discuss some of those in more detail. Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed sharing some project information with you today. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Cindy Anker, a master's student with South Dakota State University. We greatly appreciate her time in sharing some of the preliminary stories out of her Mallard telemetry study. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and support of the podcast and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.